Shri Dhammadarjanani by Shivaram Swami Chapter 8 Shri Dhammadar's Mother Nemam virinchona bhavo na shriyarapi angashamshaya prasadam lebhire gopi yatat prapya vibhuktidat Neither Lord Brahma nor Lord Shiva nor even the goddess of fortune who is always the better half of the Supreme Lord can attain from the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the deliverer of this material world, such mercy as received by Mother Yashoda. Srimad Bhagavatam 10.9.20 Being bound and shackled was a new experience. And at first, Krishna did not like it. He tested the rope around his belly. The tight knot held fast. He pulled on the mortar. It would not bulge. Frustrated at his predicament, Krishna's eyes welled with tears. Seeing this, the monkeys became increasingly excited, and his friends lovingly tried to console him. And while the diverse residents of the universe felt for Krishna's plight, the picture of his crying lotus face mesmerized them with its beauty and made them forget his sorrow and its cause. Generally, only perfected devotees would see such transcendental beauty in trance, but Krishna had let loose the floodgates of his mercy, and so anyone with eyes could see him effortlessly. His heart's sorrow unrestrained, Krishna's facial features bloomed like a lotus bud slowly opening, revealing his fully blossomed divine beauty. And although he was in distress, being the very essence of bliss, his visage removed everyone else's distress. His deep blue hair flowed like the glossy waters of the Yamuna, shimmering red, like the vermilion from the gopi's breasts, or with the glow of his passionate disposition, or with the pollen of red lotuses. Curly locks surrounded Krishna's exquisite face in a way that lazy bees swarm a blue lotus, sometimes trembling, sometimes swaying, sometimes dancing. His silky smooth cheeks, adorned with the rouge from Mother Yashoda's kisses, were further ornamented with the effulgence from his earrings, exertion from his labor, and rivulets from his tears. And his face was a fathomless lake in which the swarm of youthful fish of his restless eyes, darting to and fro, while filling the directions with shafts of fear, mischief, and determination. Some boys tried to ease Krishna's embarrassment by offering him a snack. Friend, would you like me to ask my mother for some yogurt? At the sound of the word yogurt, Krishna became aware of his hunger. The skirmish with Madhya Shoda had crossed the timeline of several meals, during which he had not eaten a thing. Spontaneously, Krishna's mind switched into strategic mode and replied, Silly, your mother is at my house. Why bother her? Some of you should run to your untended homes and see what is available. With shouts of joy, some boys ran home and took whatever butter, yogurt, and sweets were accessible. Loaded down with an assortment of delicacies, the gopas hurried, back with their spoils, and proceeded to feed Krishna. In this way, Damodar and the gopas enjoyed a picnic in which the mortar served as a handy dais. 
Feeling refreshed from his meal and enlivened by the exuberance of his friends, Krishna started to test the mortar. How heavy was it? He tugged. With the strength of a little boy, he could only rock it. But when a few gopas pushed it, Krishna was able to move the mortar slightly. Here was another game. Pull the mortar! Krishna thought of dragging the mortar to a, a more open space. And soon he discovered that when he pulled downhill, the mortar was naturally easier to move. Seeing Krishna's success, the boys laughed and clapped, and he responded with louder laughter, flaunting his muscles and making funny faces. Placing his hands under his armpits, he flapped his cross arms to display his strength. The mortar was in a quandary. How can I disobey the queen's plan? and spoil her hard-earned victory. But then, how can I resist the Lord? Fortunately for the mortar, it had little choice in the matter, since Krishna has discovered a new sport that he was intent on playing. There would be little hope of resisting him. Indeed, Krishna was enjoying himself so much that he lost all desire to be freed from his bonds. In this way, he transformed a setback into a sport. To the applause of his friends, Krishna slowly dragged the mortar here and there, occasionally sitting down to catch his breath. During one such breather, Krishna thought, By this pastime, I have made it known three things, that I come under the control of my devotee, the transcendental eminence from my mother, and the power of spontaneous love for me. By knowing these truths, those devotees who aspire for the ultimate perfection will know both the means for and the ends of that attainment. Or Krishna was thinking in this way. The wise birds of Raja began to praise the extraordinary perfection of Mother Yashoda, filling the gardens of Gokul with uncommon songs. As the birds chatter about how Krishna comes under the control of his devotee, the songbird from Mathura, a regulative devotee, asked, What difficult to perform austerity did the queen of Raj do to become so blessed by providence? While some birds continued their chatter, others, like the owl, stopped cold and pierced the songbird with a glance. Unsure what he had said wrong, the songbird looked around at his superiors. Finally, the sober owl said, Foolish bird! Do you think that austerities or blessings enable someone to become the mother of God and then to bind him up? If so, you are mistaken. Shuka added serenely, Yashoda Devi's good fortune is not acquired. It is eternal, and as such, she is the recipient of the Lord's greatest mercy. As soon as he spoke these words, Shuka's feathers stood on end in ecstasy, as did the feathers of those birds that heard him. No one has received such mercy as she. Hearing those words, the birds launched into a comparative study of the mercy received by Mother Yashoda and that received by other devotees. The dove introduced what everyone present already agreed on. Although appearing as a child, Krishna is the Supreme Master, and everyone up to Burma, Shiva, and Lakshmi Devi are his servants. Other birds excitedly continued one after another, and we have long known 
what the devas recently concluded, which is that Krishna has the attribute of subordinating himself to his servant. But all devotees are not the same, because the strength of their devotion varies. Therefore, they receive different degrees of his mercy. That is the principle of yeyata mam prapadyante. Sari interjected, And because her devotion to Krishna is superlative, the mercy Queen Ashoda received is unequaled. What she secured is something exceptionally wonderful. Hitting Shari's voice, trembling with divine emotion, the bird's feathers again stood up in ecstasy, and they remained speechless for a few moments before resuming their harikatha. Who else has obtained such mercy? No one. Krishna is the patron of liberation, mukti. But the special liberation, vimukti, that Yashoda enjoys, has eluded Brahma, Rudra, and even Lakshmiji. A flock of jungle babblers echoed each other. They did not attain it. They did not. They did not. The Mathura songbird added, You mean others did not get such mercy that they could tie up the Lord? Again the babblers replied, Neither Lord Brahma, neither Lord Shiva, nor even the goddess of fortune. The Mathura songbird looked around cautiously, seeing his reserve. The wise owl reassured him, Disclose your thoughts without fear. That way we can make known the glories of our queen. The songbird revealed his mind. But Lord Brahma is the primeval demigod, the son of the Lord, and the first guru of devotees indeed. He is a qualitative incarnation of Lord Krishna. The other birds responded, But did he ever bind Krishna to a mortar? Never? The creator can only hear about the mercy of Yashoda Devi received. The Mathura songbird continued, Lord Shiva is a greater devotee than Brahma, the greatest, and he is the Lord's self, surely. But he has never chased and caught Krishna, or reprimand the Lord. What to speak of having bound Krishna's belly with a rope? And if you want to ask about Lakshmi Devi, the goddess of fortune, we offer her our pranams. For she is the Lord's wife, constant associate, and dearly beloved. Certainly she has taken shelter of the Lord's body, and thus resides always on his chest. The songbird tentatively added, Certainly she must have mercy like this gopi. No, she did not, the owl patiently explained. Neither it will be possible for Lakshmi to ever attain the mercy showered on Queen Yashoda. The babblers, Never, never, never! Why? Having taken shelter of the Lord, Lakshmi Devi's conception is that she belongs to him. She is Tadiya. Her knowledge of his opulence overshadows the more intimate conception of Madhya, which means Krishna belongs to me. The mature songbird was starting to understand. But as Krishna's mother, Yashoda Devi is different, much different. Continued the owl, Yashoda Devi is unaware of Krishna's greatness. She simply thinks, I, my child's only shelter, only my efforts can secure his welfare. In other words, her exclusive frame of mind is that Krishna belongs to her. 
But Lakshmi resides on the Lord's chess. Then you can argue that she controls his chess? But that is all. Madhya Shoda controls his body and his very being. The Wagtail was not as generous in his assessment of Lakshmi. Just because she resides on his chess, it is not a guarantee that she has brought his chess under control. The owl bobbed his head by the way of compromise. In either case, from the perspective of Melos, Lakshmi cannot relish the same mercy as Yashoda Devi. Although she is predominantly in the mood of friendship, higher than Brahma, and Shiva's moods of servitorship, above her is Yashoda Devi, the purest form of motherhood. Others added, Lakshmi Devi's relationship is lower than Yashoda Devi's. Therefore, her love is weaker, and so the mercy she receives is not the same. Compared to the love of Yashoda, the love of Brahma, Shiva, and Lakshmi are inferior, and so the Lord's reciprocation with them is weaker. The owl concluded, At most we could say that these great souls obtain half as much mercy as did Yashoda, but they could not get an equal amount of mercy, and if they did not, then no one else did. No one else, not one. The Matura songbird was thrilled to have the privilege of seeing such a great devotee of Krishna as Mother Yashoda. Yet he remained curious how Yashoda had attained the position of the Lord's mother, thus becoming the beneficiary of such mercy. The Vraja's birds could understand what was on the songbird's mind, and so Shuka spoke. Dear friend, Lord Brahma prays to take birth here in Gokul so that he can get the dust of one of Yashoda Devi's subjects on his head. He is therefore in no position to benedict anyone to become Krishna's parent. There may be different types of liberation, of which two are being on the same planet as the Lord, or having the same form as he. But Yashoda Devi's liberated status is far above these. It is a special status of liberation called Vimukti. The songbird asks, What is the speciality of Vimukti? It is the mature fruit of Prema, loving service of the Lord. It is? Yes, it is. Are you trying to describe it or give it a name? Yes, I am. But words escape me. Terms like Kripa or Prasad do not really do it justice. Although everyone in Vraj knows what it is, it remains beyond definition. The owl added, It is what it is. That is all. Shuka continued, Correct. It is simply Vimukti. And Krishna is the one who gives it. He is Vimuktida. Vimukti is what it is. So, dear friend, although you may have heard that Vasudrona and his wife Dada performed austerities to have the Lord as their son, still you should know better than to think that demigods can become the Lord's parents. Not a well-considered concept, said the wagtail. Bad logic, bad logic. Drona and Dara entered the bodies of Nanda Maharaj and Yashoda Devi, and in that way, 
by the grace of Krishna's eternal parents, these demigods enjoyed parenthood. That is all. Unable to restrain themselves further, the other birds sang, Queen Yashoda is Krishna's eternal mother. She is Nityasiddha. No practitioner could have become Yashoda, and no one will. She is exclusively his eternal mother, and that is the meaning of Vimukta, special liberation. Having concluded in this way, the birds became overwhelmed with ecstasy. Flittering on their branches and bobbing up and down, they sang the following song in chorus. Neither Lord Brahma, nor Lord Shiva, nor even the goddess of fortune, who is always the better half of the Supreme Lord, can attain from the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the deliverer of this material world, such mercy as received by Mother Yashoda. Every time they sang this verse, the birds responsively sang the last line, When Krishna heard this wonderful song, he paused in his play and became absorbed in thoughts of his mother and the unique devotion that she and the Rajbasis harbored for him. They are so remarkable. Their love is so unique, so rare, so wonderful, so powerful. The cowherd boys noted Krishna's reverie, and so they entertained themselves by feeding each other sweets. They knew that Krishna was special. He accomplished superhuman feats, and he was very clever, and that he was universally attractive. In short, he is very mysterious, one boy once remarked. And all these features made him so lovable that the boys could not live without him. When inevitably they were separated after a day of play, the boys died. They moved about their homes like haunted creatures, behaving as Krishna was beside them. At night, they talked in their sleep, saying things like, Friend, hide your bodily effulgence, lest we are discovered stealing yogurt here. The boys' parents worried that their children had no appetite at home. Only way to persuade them to eat was by setting a seat for Krishna, saying, Look, my beloved, Krishna has come to our house for supper. Now both of you eat together heartily. And the love of the gopas did oblige Krishna to appear in their homes for supper. Visible only to his friends, Krishna would eat so that the boys would eat, and the parents would marvel how the plate set for Krishna was mysteriously consumed. Elder gopas and gopis were astonished by these incidents, and they too would say, Krishna is so mysterious. These older rajwasis held a secret within their hearts. They did not dare to share even between husband and wife. That secret was that their love for the mysterious son of Nandamaraj was greater than their love for their own offspring. Indeed, they would think, It seems that I love my own son because he is Krishna's friend. How unusual! And all these features made him so lovable that the boys could not live without him. When inevitably they were separated after a day of plays, Although abandoning the association of family members is very difficult, by absorption in thoughts of Krishna, the Rajvasis effortlessly attain a perfection unknown to the students of Vedic knowledge. But then it is said, what cannot be given up for Krishna's sake and by those who have fully surrendered to his lotus feet? The Rajvasis were fully surrendered. Indeed, their devotion to Krishna 
went beyond surrender, and Krishna was their entire being. In the way that the soul is the dynamic force in everyone's body, Krishna and their love for him was the Brajbasi's source of life. Unlike yogis, jnanis, or even regulated devotees, the Brajbasi's attainment to Krishna was effortless. It was spontaneous, as was his attachment to them. The unceasing and increasing exchange of spontaneous love between Krishna and his devotees saturated the land of Raja and made it a place so special as to be revered by the residents of Vaikuntha. The power of this Raja Bhakti was so great that conditioned souls who strive after it by hearing about Krishna and his companions surpassed both the spiritual practices and the perfections of other transcendentalists. Krishna looked lovingly at his friends and thought, For them, I am so easy to attain. His heart replied, But for others, you remain very distant. Conversing with himself, Krishna responded, I am also easily purchased by those who follow them or who follow my mother. Easy and difficult, both. I let mother tie me up to this mortar. And from now on, the word Bhagavan will mean the Gopi's son, Gopika Sutta. That is what it always means. But that is not understood even by devotees in Vaikuntha. Glancing at the playing boys, Krishna thought, Glancing at the playing boys, Krishna thought, It can be understood by those who associate with them or by those who solely devoted to them. The Vedic conclusion is that anyone can attain spontaneous attachment to me by, and only by, the association of pure devotees. Does that apply to materialists, jnanis, and even the self-realized? If they somehow get association of the Bhagavatas, then gradually I become accessible in truth, austerities, scriptural study, and even attempts at liberation are false duties. Hearing from and serving my devotees is the only true duty for mankind. Non-devotees are of two types, those who identify themselves with the material body and those who given up such false identification. The former are the gross materialists, karmis, and austere ascetics, tapasvis, and the latter are the mental speculators, jnanis, and advanced yogis. If any of these people humbly accept the guidance of Krishna's pure devotees, they will gain access to the path of Goloka life, in which spontaneous attachment to Krishna and the footsteps of Rajvasis is awakened. It could be said that they easily attain Krishna. If, however, these persons do not get the mercy of pure devotees, or even worse, if they reject such mercy, then their path to perfection is arduous and highly unlikely. Among humans, those striving for self-realization, the jnanis are second to Vaishnavas. For them, to receive the blessings of spontaneous service is extremely difficult. What to speak of spiritually less advanced souls? Lord Brahma once narrated how the personified Vedas, undoubtedly greatest jnanis, were blessed with the very difficult-to-attain Rajbhakti. Brahma said, once, after the Vedas had elaborately praised him, the Lord felt especially satisfied and spoke to them in a voice 
whose source remain invisible. My dear sages, I am very satisfied with you. Please ask of me some benediction that you secretly desire. The Shrutis replied, We have developed the desire to become like cowherd women of the mortal world, inspired by lust, worship you in the mood of a lover. The Lord then said, This desire of yours is difficult to fulfill. Indeed, it is almost impossible. But since I am sanctioning it, your wish must inevitably come true. When the next Brahma takes birth to faithfully execute his duties of creation, and when the day of his life called Sarasvata Kalpa arrives, you will all appear in Raja as gopis. On the earth, in the land of Bharata, in my own district of Mathura, in the forest of Vrindavan, I will become your beloved in the circle of the Rasa dance. Thus, obtaining me as your paramour, you will all gain the most exalted and steadfast pure love for me, and in this way you will fulfill all your ambitions. Lord Brahma said, After hearing these words, the Shrutis meditated on the personality of Godhead's beauty for some time. When the designated time ultimately arrived, they became gopis and attained the association of Krishna. Although the Lord directly blessed the personified Vedas, they had to wait an exceedingly long time for perfection, and during that time they had to remain in trance. Thus, in the absence of devotee association, even the Shrutis, the topmost jnanis, experienced great difficulty in reaching Raj Bhakti. Krishna reflected, Whether jnanis take the self to be the boat with which to cross the ocean of nations, where they have realized the self and become jivan mukta, or whether they are universally recognized authorities like the Kumaras, Brahma, Shiva, or Lakshmi, they remain far from me, the son of Yashoda. Krishna's inner self added, And the devotees perfected in the mellow of neutrality? They also remain far distant, for real bhakti begins with service, or dasya rasa. Indeed, those devotees who are firmly fixed in pure spontaneous devotion offer their respects to the devotees of Dwarka, Ayodhya, and Vaikuntha from a distance, from a far distance. The cowherd boys interpreted Krishna's reverie as moroseness, and so they gathered around to cheer him up. Some spoke sweet words of encouragement, others massaged his bound belly, and still others fed him delicacies plundered from home. O oh, friend, eat this special sweet rice, which was offered to our deity this morning. It will give you strength to pour that mortar to the ends of the earth. Another boy added, If your mother became upset at your hiding a pot of yogurt, imagine how upset she will be if you conceal this mortar in some far-off place. The cowherd boys laughed heartily at their childish jokes and so prompted Krishna to abandon his philosophical abstractions. While yogis meditated in secluded mountain caves to catch a glimpse of Paramatma within their hearts, these village gopas could see, touch, play with Bhagavan at will. The difference between the two was that the yogis tried to subdue the all-powerful Lord by the strength of their austerities, while the gopas only thought of how to serve Krishna with their hearts full of love.
Krishna had appeared in this world to make known the superiority of the cowherd boy's approach to perfection. Thus aspiring spiritualists who acquired even a little of the Vrajbasi's attachment to him could attain a liberation that eluded others even after eons of ascetic discipline. When Brahma had offered a boon to Drona and Dara, the Vasus replied, Bhaktisyat parama loke yayanjo durgatim dharit. Let those who follow in the devotional footsteps of the Lord's associates, the Rajvasis, be easily delivered from the miserable condition of materialistic life. What did following in the footsteps of the Rajvasis mean? Krishna's pastimes are so wonderful that if one hears or repeats them, the devotional mood of the Rajvasis rubs off on the hearers' and chanters' hearts. As a consequence, both faith in and attachment to the service of the Rajvasis impels practitioners to adopt the process of bhakti yoga in order to qualify themselves for the perfection of becoming an associate of the Lord. Then, by the strength of devotional service, practitioners advance Practitioners advance from the stages of practice to ecstasy and from ecstasy to love. When love blossoms, a devotee becomes a qualified follower of the Rajvasis in one of the four mellows of devotion and is installed in a corresponding service under the guidance of a specific gopa or gopi. Thus one becomes an eternal associate of Krishna and enters into those pastimes in which earlier one had heard about. Considering the eminence of an attainment that makes one eligible to play with God, the devotional path that leads to and includes following a Vrajbasi's role model is actually a relatively easy one. The abiding principle is to always be in the shelter of pure devotees who have given their hearts over to the son of Mother Yashoda. Surrendered devotees can engage in the service of Mother Yashoda's son, and enjoy the happiness of his sports even while residing within this world. Such privilege reflects the measure of freedom that surrender to Krishna's associates brings. By contrast, liberated souls and even devotees of the Lord who do not recognize the original feature of Bhagavan as the son of Madhya Shoda have great difficulty in attaining him. Thus, the root of loving devotion is the mercy of Krishna's associates. And among those associates, Madhya Shoda stands supreme, as testified to by the names Bhagavan and Gopika Sutta being synonymous. At the thought of being called Gopika Sutta, Krishna smiled. It is one of my favorite names, like Yeshomati Nandana. But Gopika Sutta implies that I am also the son of the elder gopis of Gokul. And that is the truth. By mother's association, they too acquired a love for me similar to hers. The gopas and gopis of Gokul used to think, Will we ever be as fortunate as Nanda and Yashoda? Will Krishna ever become our son? To fulfill this desire, Krishna devised a plan to become the Rajbasi's children in the future. When Lord Brahma would decide to test Krishna's powers by stealing the cowherd boys and calves, unknown even to Balaram, Krishna would expand himself to assume the forms of both gopas and calves. In that way, Yashoda's followers would enjoy the special pleasure of breastfeeding, massaging, bathing, dressing, and feeding Krishna.
And although these gopis' affection for Krishna had been greater than their own sons, when Krishna would become their son, that distinction would disappear, and every day they would find new inspiration to love their sons as much as they loved Krishna. Thus Krishna would reward the residents of Vrindavan for their exceptional love, a love they had acquired by keeping company with the touchstone monarchs of their land. By being always in their company, and by hearing from them about baby Krishna, parental love spontaneously awoke in the hearts of Nanda and Yashoda's contemporaries. The same dynamic works for those who have taken to the practice of devotional service and have the good fortune of serving exalted Vaishnavas. The process of awakening spontaneous devotion is eternal and effective in all phases of time and in every place. The Gandharva named Chandrakanti, the personified Vedas, and the sages of Dandakaranya Forest are some examples. Similarly, Raghunath Das Goswami and Shamananda Prabhu came to the stage of spontaneous devotion by the guidance of Rupa Goswami and Jiva Goswami, respectively. While his friends were arguing over some delicacy, Krishna shook his head at the foolish people who believe his mother earned her status by practice. People in this world do not switch mothers. Why would a wise man think that I do? And why would they, since Yashoda Devi has always been the role model for practitioners? How could she have become Krishna's mother? By meditating on herself? By worshipping Krishna as her own son? Sensible people naturally accept that her position as Krishna's mother is eternal. She is Nitya Siddha. For Mother Yashoda and for those devotees who attain a perfection like her, Krishna is easily captured. But for others, even for the likes of Brahma, Shiva, and Lakshmi, it is nearly impossible. I belong to the Rajvasis and to no one else. They are my own people. Brahma and Shiva have certainly become recipients of my mercy, but because, like Lakshmi, they identify with their standing in universal hierarchy, they still have a sense of being like me, a controller. Therefore, I submit to them only partly. There is another reason why the universal administrators cannot follow in the footsteps of Madhyashoda. It is difficult, even painful for them to think of treating Krishna as an inferior, and that reluctance to conceive Krishna as a subordinate will be shared by any devotee who does not hear about Krishna's Vrindavan pastimes and associates. But devotees who are free of all designations and identify only with their spontaneous love for me, they'll climb on my shoulders, as do my friends, or chastise me, as does my mother, and in doing so, the Rajvasis savor a transcendental happiness that is unknown to anyone. Now, Madhya Shoda is the most fortunate of the Rajvasis. Therefore, she relishes incomparable bliss in chasing after and binding her son. Yes, no one compares to mother. That is why I am called Gopika Asuta. While Krishna was absorbed in Rajvasi Samadhi, the cowherd boy's frustration at his imprisonment surfaced in words critical of Mother Yashoda. My mother would never tie me down like this. Nor mine. She loves me too much. We should protest to Nanda Maharaj. Let us make a delegation against such injustice. 
For a moment, Krishna rode the waves of his friend's critique and even shed a few tears to milk their sympathy. Poor Krishna, I'll get a knife and cut this rope. Then the irrepressible love for his mother got the better of him, and rising to his feet like an orator, Krishna said, Do not fault my mother. But his friends were not so easily silenced. We do not fault her. But how is it correct to treat a prince like a common criminal? Tell us. I will tell you. My mother's discipline is not due to a dearth, but rather to an abundance of affection for me. Because I am a prince, my conduct should be exemplary. And because she is a queen, she should discipline her son in the same way as she would any subject. The boys looked at each other, humbled as Krishna continued. Because my mother loves you all as much as she loves me. She has decided to reprimand me publicly so that you, accomplices in my crime, will also be forewarned. Looking at looking each boy in the eyes and then beyond them to Gokul, and then beyond Gokul to the entire world, Krishna opened his wide arms and declared, You should all know well that there is no greater love than Queen Yashoda. She is my greatest well-wisher and guide. If she wanted to shackle me in a cold dungeon forever and ever, I would take that as her kindness upon me. Please never let me hear another unkind word from any of you about the Queen of Raj. The boys were thunderstruck. Krishna radiated bliss, and his eyes shed tears. Having concluded this proclamation of his mother's greatness, Gopika Sutta sat down and again entertained himself with his friends. The demigods, too, heard Krishna's proclamation, and they bowed to him, their lord, in the form of cowherd boy. Their own discourses, as well as those of the birds and Krishna, opened for them a new vista to transcendental realization. However, some of the devas had difficulty in accepting the proposition that regulated devotion could not bring a worshipper to the same intimate service as could the spontaneous service exemplified by Queen Yashoda. In other words, they could not accept that regulated devotion was inferior to spontaneous devotion. And so they conversed, diving deep into the ocean of Vedic truths in order to distill a conclusion that was agreeable to them all. From what I have heard today, I must conclude that Lord Krishna fully reveals himself only to devotees who have spontaneous love for him, love that is unhampered by the slightest reverence for his divinity. That is also the message I get. But my understanding has always been that careful adherence to scriptural injunctions, the path of Vaidhi Bhakti, is the means to attain the ultimate goal of life. An elder deva replied, My sons, your understanding of devotional service has been incomplete. The two inquired, Please explain our misunderstanding based on the authorities of scriptures. Then hear how Vedanta answers this question with the aphorism, Upapanas tad lakshartarto palabhader lokavat. It is best because the attainment of the goal, the Lord, is of the same nature as is exemplified by what we find in the world.
May we have an explanation of this difficult-to-understand decree? The path of spontaneous devotion leads to the ultimate goal because it invokes Lord Krishna's most innate characteristic, which is to, to instinctively love his devotee. The example given is that a king who comes under the control of his devoted servant. But does not the Lord submit to all of his devotees? He does. And that is one of his special characteristics, which, as you know, does not in the least diminish his supreme independence. We have understood that. But there is a difference between Lord Krishna submitting to a devotee who reveres him and to one who loves him. What is that difference? When Krishna submits to pure love, which is inspired by who he is, the cowherd of Raja, the special sweetness of his personality comes to the fore and subverts his godhood. Under this circumstance, Krishna's submission is also spontaneous, and so it is especially wonderful, for it is not weakened by formalities. In other words, Krishna's love for and submission to devotees with spontaneous love is also spontaneous, and it reveals his unfettered personality. Oh, I see. The Lord's foremost quality is his sweetness, but this sweetness cannot be fully known to regulated devotees, and it is the prerogative of devotees in spontaneous attachment. And when Krishna manifests his sweetness to those rare souls, their love and devotion for him increases and places him under further obligation to them. In this ever-rising spiral of loving exchange, Krishna fully gives himself to his servant, after which he still considers himself to be in their debt. The senior deva paused before revealing the essence of his teachings. Lord Krishna's nature is like this. He appreciates the sweetness of his devotees because he is the all-sweetness himself. And as the aphorism says, Lokavat, this is the way of this world. You are great demigods, revered by men. But do your wives revere you? No, they love you. As do family members, their patriarch. It is the same way for the people of this planet. A loving member is natural. Therefore, loving the Lord in a liberated state is similar to the love people display for family members in their conditioned state. Spontaneous. The transition is both easy and natural. Just transfer love from family to Krishna. This is the most powerful sadhana. The other demigods were wonderstruck to hear this revelation, and their hearts melted with attachment to Krishna. They thought, How wonderful a person is the Lord whom we worship. The deva continued, Now behold this queen of Vrindavan, who we call Gopika. Out of his kindness the Lord has allowed us to witness the power of her love and his complete surrender to it. She is the epitome of the Vedanta aphorism. O learned one, please reveal to us that specific spiritual affirmation which eulogizes Queen Yashoda. Then, please listen to, learn, and meditate on the statement of the spotless Purana. 
By doing so, the prevailing truths of spontaneous devotion and its reigning monarch will become known to you. The son of Yas, Sri Sukha said, Nayam Sukapo Bhagavan Deham Gopika Sutta Gyaninam Chatmanam Bhutanam Yatha Bhakti Matamiha the Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna, the son of Mother Yashoda, is accessible to devotees engaged in spontaneous loving service, but he is not as easily accessible to mental speculators, to those striving for self-realization by severe austerities and penances, or to those who consider the body as the same as the self. Their misunderstanding about devotional service dispelled. The demigods were euphoric and repeated the verse of the Srimad Bhagavatam, over and over again. The two devas who doubted the greatness of spontaneous devotion said, Although Lord Krishna is uncontrolled, although Lord Krishna is controlled by his devotees, he places himself fully under the control of devotees who are the embodiments of spontaneous love for him. Therefore, the path of spontaneous love is the best path of devotional service. And the devotees who follow this path are the best of all devotees. Hearing this conclusion of his servants, Krishna was very pleased. He and his Vrindavan entourage had descended to earth to demonstrate the magic of spontaneous loving service. Now that conditioned souls like these demigods were appreciating that divine magic, he felt that his mission was becoming successful. He thought, May all others who hear and read the narrations of Srimad Bhagavatam also come to the same conclusion. And may they act according to that conclusion by always hearing and chanting about my Vrindavan pastimes. <laughs>